Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of both reading and then talking with Liz Lundbeck about her brand new book, The Americanization of Narcissism. This just came out in 2014 with Harvard University Press. This is, at the same time, a history of narcissism as a concept and an object. It's a history of psychoanalysis in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's a history of America at the same time. And it's a history of the emergence of and transformations of a kind of social category or concept that we tend to take for granted now, or at least many of us tend to take for granted now. That is the idea of narcissism. I mean, how many of us have taken quizzes online that you know, judge which matrix character are you? And if you're Neo, then you're the narcissist, right? Or take other kinds of quizzes online to test our personality traits. We also tend to assume that narcissism is a negative trait. It's a bad thing in the sense of, oh, you're such a narcissist or he's such a narcissist. Now, one of the wonderful kinds of work that Lundbeck's book does is it really opens up the history of narcissism as a category, and it shows that from the very beginning of its emergence as a concept, there was at the same time a really complex blend of positive and negative that kind of went into identifying narcissism as a category. In other words, it's not the case that narcissism from its earliest instantiation up through psychoanalytic treatments of it today is necessarily a bad thing. And so she shows us the really multifaceted and complex character of narcissism in a way that I think really changes potentially. It has changed for me how I think about that concept when I see it in sort of common discourse right now. So it's a really transformative book. It's beautifully written. It's really a lot of fun as well, as you'll hear toward the end of the interview, um, elements of the history of fashion and clothing also come into this story in really fascinating ways. And it was a great pleasure to talk with Liz about it. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And I hope you also have a chance um, to take a look at the book because it's a really fascinating story and it's a really good read. I'm here today to talk with Elizabeth Lundbeck about her new book, The Americanization of Narcissism. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Liz, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I really, really loved. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Carla. So Liz, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the history of the human sciences as a discipline? Well, it started a long time ago. Um, When I was a graduate student, I had entered graduate school um, to work on 20th century British history. And after moving around quite a bit among topics, I decided to leave graduate school for a while and um, work in a clinical field. So I did a number of different short-term jobs um, that had to do with psychiatry because my interest, I had developed an interest in psychiatry and specifically in Freud through teaching as a graduate student. I was at Harvard at the time. Um, And I thought about 
becoming a clinician, but in the end realized I was far more a historian than I'd thought. So I went back to graduate school and basically have spent my whole career writing about the history of the human sciences. Um, so it's a long-standing interest, and I guess you could say it was nurtured both by teaching and by some of the interest around Foucault in the early 80s um, when I was in graduate school, um, just a new way of thinking about personhood and mind and society that was extremely exciting for me. So that's where I got my start. Great. So the book that we're here to talk about today explores the intertwined histories of narcissism, psychoanalysis, and in some ways modernity in 20th and 21st century America. How did you come to work on this topic in particular, and how did you decide to create a book-length object devoted to this topic? That's an interesting question. Um, it's a, it was a long-term process. After I finished my first book, which was on psychiatry, um, and I published that in 1994, um, the, the kind of supplementary leftover category was that of the personality disorders, which don't really fit neatly into psychiatric um, classifications because they're not really about symptoms. Um, they're about lifelong characterological dispositions. Um, and there hasn't, at least at that point, there hadn't been a lot of really good work done on the personality disorders. Um, they're very recalcitrant to understanding because they can feel like they're about everything. And I started out thinking, well, I'm going to write on borderline personality disorder, which is a category that is so um, just saturated with history, um, with gender, and has been extremely confusing to clinicians. But I, in the end, I decided to publish my work on that as a in as a kind of directed article instead of a book. It was just too crazy making. It was um, I, I don't. It's I can't go into it here. But it was it was just it was too difficult to get my head around. So I thought, well, this was after a while. Uh, what about narcissism? I'd always been intrigued by the popularity of Christopher Lash's book. And in fact, Christopher Lash hired me for my first job at the University of Rochester. Um, and I was, I was interested in like why that book had so much appeal, why it seemed to have so much enduring appeal. What was it about the book that made it so powerful? So I, I wrote a, basically a book draft and then decided, eh, this is not, I'm not getting it. Um, it felt too much like I was the outsider kind of tut-tutting, reproving the critics or reproving the psychoanalyst. And that is certainly not a position I want to be in as a historian. So I decided, well, I'm going to have to learn about psychoanalysis from the inside. So for the last, I don't know, 10, 8, 10 years, I've been teaching psychoanalysis. I went into psychoanalysis. Um, I've been training in psychoanalysis to really get my head around this discipline in the same way that if you were going to write about physics, you would learn about physics. Um, and that has been a long-term process, and I think it's really enriched the book. So that's how I got there. And narcissism is, to write the history of narcissism for my perspective, is really to write the history of 20th century psychoanalysis because it's such an um, intriguing category in that history. It's such a problematic category, and it does a lot of cultural work 
outside of psychoanalysis, but it also does a lot of conceptual work within psychoanalysis. So it seemed the perfect category to begin to look at relations between inner and outer. Um, what does it look like within the discipline and how has it been appropriated in the culture and what are the feedback loops? That's great. Thank you so much. And speaking of sort of feedback loops, let's go back to, I think, or I think a good place to start is to go back to um, someone whose work you just recently talked about. That's Christopher Lash, because this is really um, the heart of where the book begins in the first body chapter. So the book um, opens up with, well, before we get there, the book opens up with this sentence. It's a common place of social criticism that America has become over the past century so, or so a nation of narcissists. And what the book does really beautifully, I think, is take us into this concept and this sort of truism that we, or many of us kind of accept unproblematically. We think we know what narcissism is. We take, you know, BuzzFeed quizzes all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> quizzes online. And what the book does is it takes us into the history history of the emergence of and the really complexities of this category and really shows how, at least from the perspective of one reader, all along this has been a much more complicated, much more sort of rich and complex and multi-sided and multifaceted kind of concept in a way that really helps us, I think, much more critically appraise and really think very differently about how we approach narcissism as a category and a concept right now. So narcissism first emerged as a clinical phenomenon in World War I-era Vienna and Budapest, as you mentioned in the first body chapter of the book, and in interwar London, but it didn't enter the popular lexicon until the 1970s. And the landmark work, really the landmark work in that context, was the book by Christopher Lash, as you mentioned earlier, The Culture of Narcissism. And this was published in 1978. So because this really, I think, lays the foundation for what's to come, and it's going to come back again over and over throughout the chapters, I think it makes sense to start here in our conversation as well. So for listeners and to kind of get us started, can you talk a little bit about Lash and his work? Sort of who was he and what was his vision of narcissism in the work that became um, so popular and so influential in 1978. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Christopher Lash was a historian um, and public intellectual, um, a very brilliant thinker um, who sort of migrated from the left to the kind of communitarian center, center right over the course of his career. Um, I think the 70s were a really difficult time for a lot of cultural critics, and he was among those. Um, He picked up on something that was going on in psychoanalysis in the mid-70s and published a long review article in the New York Review called The Narcissist Society, which you wouldn't say it then, but in 70s terms went viral. Um, It was a phenomenon, that article. And then a few years later published The Culture of Narcissism, which became a kind of touchstone of the 70s. It was on many lists of the most, excuse me, influential books of the decade. Um, Jimmy Carter read it. Lash was invited to the White House. So what was his argument? Basically, the argument was he read a lot of psychoanalysis. He picked up on the ferment around narcissism within the discipline and used the term and the concept to indict Americans for their selfishness, 
for their um, manipulativeness, their exploitativeness, and so on. Um, and then it became, the first chapter was quite clinical, and then it kind of went off into indicting everything around sports and child-rearing and feminism, and it was a kind of a wholesale indictment of the society. So it was a Jeremiah, which is a very popular form in the American tradition. Um, so Lash was a good reader of one part of the narcissism debate, and that was the part that was represented by the psychoanalyst Otto Kernberg, um, who actually is still alive. He was a Viennese immigrant, um, entered the United States after spending some time in Chile, um, brought object relations of particular kind of English psychoanalysis to America. Um, and in the 60s and 70s began to write about narcissism. Kernberg's stress was on malignant narcissism, pathological narcissism, and he provided beautiful, compelling um, characterological portraits of a person who we would recognize, many of us would recognize as a narcissist. Lash understood Kernberg because Kernberg's message in these works was focused on the negative about narcissism, um, the way that narcissists hurt other people, they were empty inside, and so on. The other part of the narcissism debate, which was represented by Heinz Cohen, also a Viennese immigrant um, who settled in Chicago um, and focused much more on narcissism's upside, healthy narcissism, Lash did not get at all. He read Cohut, he cited Cohut, he talked about Cohut, but he had Cohut completely backwards. Cohut could not have disagreed more with Lash's argument. Cohut's argument was not that we were too narcissistic, but that we weren't narcissistic enough. So Lash did a beautiful job of bringing psychoanalytic concepts into popular conversation at the price of a massive simplification. Um, and also he linked the concept narcissism to critique of consumption that it had not been linked to in psychoanalysis. And I think that linkage remains with us still. So narcissism is associated with shopping and consumption and, and sort of women who buy too much, women who shop too much, a focus on looks and beauty and so on. Um, Lash affected that. Not only Lash, but he was the main spokesperson for a group of critics who affected this knitting together of the critique of our character um, and the critique of consumption around narcissism. Great. Thank you so much. And you've already brought up, I think, really nicely, really beautifully, two of the main figures um, who occupy really the focal points of chapter two and chapter three, and that is Kohut, or uh, Heinz Kohut and Otto Kernberg. Now, but both of them are situated in this early part of the book within a framework that includes a prior interlocutor and somebody um, whose work on the topic is now um, reached its centenary. We're in 2014. This was published in 1914, and that's Freud in his landmark essay on narcissism and introduction. Since this is also another touchstone for the entire work and for this history, could you say a little bit about 
what elements of that essay and of Freud's conception of narcissism that listeners need to or should understand in order to understand the ways that the later figures who occupy the central places in the book are responding to and perhaps differentiating themselves from Freud in his work on narcissism. Um, Freud, Freud's work on narcissism, the essay itself, many people found extremely confusing. His colleagues found it confusing. It marked a, a kind of um, transition point in his thinking where Freud began to think about the ways that we are interested in self-preservation. Um, so this, this sort of investment in ourselves as a necessary part of human life and of the human experience, that is in Freud. Freud also in that essay um, talked about the regulation of self-esteem. Now that was translated as self-regard, but in other parts of the translation, the same word that is translated as self-regard and on narcissism is translated as self-esteem. Um, so in other parts of the Freud corpus, I should say. So it's really about how we regulate self, our self-esteem. Um, our feelings about ourselves, our feelings of self-worth. That is at the center of the discussion of narcissism today. Psychoanalysts think of narcissism as a process of regulating self-esteem. You don't want it to get too high and you don't want to get it too low. It's kind of the Goldilocks problem. You want it to be just right. All of us engage in this. It's a process that we all have to manage in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, someone insults us, we get a bad book review, for example, our self-esteem might go down. Um, someone says something nice to us, we get a good book review, our self-esteem might go up. It's something that we all manage day-to-day. -day. It's perfectly normal. There's nothing extraordinary about it. That is an analytic understanding of self-esteem, and it is in on narcissism. Freud also, not in this, this essay, but in a later essay, and also in some of his correspondence and scattered throughout his work, talked about a different kind of narcissist, um, which is the powerful personage who wants to change the world and who is incredibly charismatic and who kind of grabs the world by its horns and is capable of affecting great good and change, but also of, as he says, damaging the established state of affairs. And this is very much like the narcissistic CEO um, that many commentators are writing about today. The Steve Jobs type of character, for example, capable, creative, revolutionary, breaking up old paradigms at the same time, really hard to deal with. Um, classic narcissist, productive narcissist. So that's also in Freud, although not in the essay on narcissism. The essay on narcissism also talks about um, the, the narcissism of the baby, our attraction to the baby, our description of omnipotence and grandiosity to the baby, the baby's, our, our sense that the baby feels him or herself to be all powerful and how we all through our lives try to get back to that early state of feeling omnipotent, um, effective, grandiose, and so on. Because once we've lost that sense, it's so um, 
it's such an elixir that we can't help but yearn to get back to it. That's all in Freud's essay. It's very, it's a very difficult essay. Um, and psychoanalysts debated endlessly, still debate over what it meant. There are whole books, um, excavating this essay. Um, it's not an easy read. Uh, narcissism went through many transformations along the way before Coet and Kernberg um, appropriated it. And these continuing transformations and the different dimensions that make up contemporary discussions of narcissism and also the, the histories thereof are really the focus of the second part of the book. So mm-hmm. after, um, after, the first part of the book, which looks at cultures of narcissism and introduces us to not only Freud's landmark essay, but also Kohut and Kernberg and takes us through their lives and their careers as they pertain to their work on narcissism. The second part um, in turn looks at some of the major components or again, as you put it, dimensions of narcissist, uh, narcissism discourse, narcissist discourse. Mm-hmm. And self-love is the first one. Since you've just mentioned that, this seems like a really nice place um, to get into this. Now, self-love in its in various guises uh, under various terminology has long been a central trait associated with narcissism, as you've um, just talked a little bit about. And chapter four explores how and why that is. One of the really interesting dimensions of this chapter looks at Freud's work on Leonardo and connections between ideas of narcissism and homosexuality, both in his work and beyond. Um, Maybe could you talk a little bit about that and about um, these elements of Freud's life and work that shape the way this particular aspect of the discourse of narcissism plays out in this part of the book? Right. So Freud wrote an essay on Leonardo da Vinci in 1910, which is in which he first discussed narcissism at length. And narcissism in the Leonardo essay is seen as a stage through which everyone passes and at which those who become homosexual become stuck. So Leonardo is homosexual, um, according to Freud, and the kind of psychic maneuvers that define him are that and he like every homosexual takes puts himself in place of his mother and then loves another boy as his mother once loved him so freud looking at this which is sort of a triangle um sees it as a straight line that is he does not see that the boy the homosexual Leonardo is loving another person. He sees the homosexual loving himself because he identifies with his mother. So this becomes an incredibly important notion within psychoanalysis that homosexuals are incapable of loving another. They're incapable of what analysts call object love. So objects are other people, basically. Narcissists, uh, sorry, homosexuals are thus narcissists because all they are capable of is self-love. It sounds pretty simple, but immediately Freud's colleagues began to ask, well, doesn't everybody love themselves to some degree? And the answer is, of course, yes. Um, So it became a problem. How to talk about love of self 
and love of other. So in Freud's developmental telos, the normal development would be you transcend this stage of self-love and you love someone else. You leave behind your self-love and your narcissism and you become a fully heterosexual, generally based, grown-up person. Um, this didn't work in a lot of ways. Theoretically, it raised a lot of problems. And basically what had to happen was, and what did happen, was that self-love was redefined as self-esteem. It was kind of normalized as self-esteem. And the cultural truism or trope that you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else became very popular, a way, a kind of popular expression of current analytic thinking, which is that self-love is not antithetical to love of the other. It is integral to love of the other. So that was a conceptual shift that happened, um, or I should say that was affected by the work of many psychoanalysts between 1910 and, say, 1960. Um, Self-love was normalized. And now it's taken for granted within psychoanalysis that self-love is a good thing. We all have to have some sense of high self-regard, high self-esteem, whatever you want to call it. There was a a reversal of the kind of weight put on self-love. It became, it went from being something negative to something quite positive. Great. Thank you. And another really important point um, here in this chapter that I won't ask you to talk too much about, but I want to just mark because, again, it's a really important part of the argument of the book, is this chapter is also where we see a discussion of the emergent concept of healthy narcissism. Mm-hmm. And if you, yeah. So, do so, you want yeah. to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I found it interesting um, that healthy narcissism, which um, comes under some sort of cultural scrutiny, um, did not originate in the mid-decade, 1970s, but rather was first talked about in 1930s Vienna. Um, A number of Freud's colleagues, um, early analysts, wanted to enrich the analytic vocabulary, the analytic way of talking about the self um, beyond sort of Freud's notion of drives that were, were, were propelled, um, shaped by these forces that are called drives inside of us. Um, they wanted to provide a more phenomenological account of what it felt like to inhabit oneself. Um, and these analysts began to talk about what they called healthy narcissism, like a healthy sense of, of self and how that fueled our ambitions, our creativity, um, our capacity to get along with one another, and so on. It was something that was not extraordinary, but absolutely normal and necessary to civilized life. So the notion of healthy narcissism originates in Depression-era Vienna, not in mid-decade America. And I should also add to link it back to the earlier discussion, once narcissism is defined as healthy um, or in the American context, the association between narcissism and homosexuality just falls apart. It drops from view um, because the whole notion of the homosexual narcissist was that this was a pathological figure. 
I should add, however, that psychoanalysts were extremely interested in homosexuality and very um, sort of celebratory of famous homosexuals in history. Um, they talked about their own homosociality. The, the term homosexual is not uh, defined by gender theorists in the 1980s and 90s, but rather in the 1920s by psychoanalysts. Um, they lived in a very homosocial culture. Um, so homosociality and intense intimate relationships am among men were fine. Sexual acts between men were another thing, but hey, they said, you know, some of the greatest minds in history were homosexuals, so who are we to say? Great, thank you. Now, as we move from chapter four to the next couple of chapters, we move to an exploration of two dimensions of the history and discourse of narcissism that bring us into a sort of conversation about the role and the place of women explicitly in this um, conversation. So chapter five considers the place of independence, the sort of virtue and the dimension of independence in the 1970s as a value that was at the same time celebrated and also seem, seen as a symptom of narcissism. What becomes really important and interesting early on in this chapter and early on um, in this conversation is the importance of the relationship between mothers and infants. So women, and but women specifically as mothers um, and their relationship to children. Now you talk here about Freud's dependence, like his own dependence on the labor of women in his own household and how this links up with his broader conceptualization of the relationship between dependence women and children. So could you talk about that a little bit? So again, coming back to Freud as kind of a major touchstone here, his own, um, or the relevance of his own family household experience to understanding how he conceptualized the importance of dependence and its relationship to uh, women and children in this discourse. Okay, so in 1914, in the essay on narcissism, Freud hypothesizes an early state that he calls primary narcissism, in which the infant is sovereign. Um, he actually refers in another part of the essay to His Majesty the Baby. Um, right, it's, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a brilliant essay, and it's full of wonderful turns of phrase. But um, the, the notion that Freud has is that the infant is born um, sovereign, and then in a footnote, he qualifies that, you know, provided one takes into account the care provided by the mother. Um, but the idea is that infant's relationality, uh, being able to relate to the other is a development. It's not there from the start. And parenthetically, another school of psychoanalysts, um, the object relation school, would start from the premise that the infant is born in relation to others, specifically his mother, but later on other caretakers. Um, so independence for Freud is of the highest importance. What's interesting in his own life is that he presents himself as independent um, and sovereign, as do his biographers. His first biographer, Ernest Jones, um, wrote a three-volume, psychoanalyst colleague wrote a three-volume um, biography of Freud, um, in which he really wrestles with what looks like Freud's dependency on men and women, um, but his... Uh, vaunted independence 
his commitment to values of independence, um, and basically has to argue that Freud had a you know experienced a kind of special sort of dependency that was really independent. All that is to say independence was very fraught because of course we're all to some degree dependent on each other. But in early psychoanalysis, dependency was coded female. It was seen as a weakness and it was coded homosexual. So Freud, who had intensely intimate relations with men, most of them um, carried out in letters so that the men Freud and the other could kind of regulate closeness and distance. They weren't face-to-face. His most successful relationships were with men who lived in other cities um, and wrote daily or letters every other day to one another. Um, This dependency seemed natural to Freud, but when he could feel himself getting too dependent on the other, he, in everyday parlance, freaked out. Um, and really wrestled with what he defined as as his own homosexuality in relation to these men. So independence of Freud is a very fraught concept. Um, At the same time, you asked about his uh, family, at the same time as he's envisioning himself as a kind of sovereign male subject without needs, He's got a whole household organized around seeing to his every need, um, which is just, I think, exemplary of the way that a certain kind of cultural critic um, is able to hold up the sovereign male bourgeois self, 19th century bourgeois self, as a sort of freestanding subject, completely occluding the support of women Um, that is everywhere around this subject. And in the chapter, I look at how Lash um, sort of channels this horror of dependency in a modern idiom in the culture of narcissism and in uh, The Minimal Self, a book he published in 1981, I'm pretty sure, Um, basically arguing for a return to a kind of 19th century, well, his vision of what a 19th century autarkic family would look like, where the family provided everything for itself and was not dependent on the outside world for anything. Um, So you you can see through the cultural criticism and in psychoanalysis, independence is a, a sort of value of the highest order. Cohen comes along in the 70s, there were others before that, um, but I'll focus on Coet for now, and, and says, wait a minute, um, we're all dependent, infants are dependent. Um, basically, dependency is a natural human state, and the claim to independence of others and of needs is actually what is narcissistic. And now it is taken for granted within psychoanalytic thinking that the problem is not dependency. The problem is an assertion of a kind of fantasized independence of others to not having any needs to being um, so perfect that one needs nothing. That kind of grandiosity is purely narcissistic. So, 
independence is kind of turned upside down um, into dependence as being the value that we um, sort of an acceptance of our dependency is in current thinking and in 1970s thinking um, seen as a mature stance. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I, I really love the kind of work that this chapter does. And this is really um, exemplary of the kind of work that the other chapters do as well, kind of taking us deeply into Freud, coming back out again, showing the relationship between these ideas and how they play out in this landmark work of lashes, and then further complicating lash by kind of moving back out again and going back in. It's this really wonderfully dialogic kind of narrative structure that I think really works well to kind of deepen and also complicate our understanding of narcissism in the way that the book does so beautifully. So the next chapter as we move from independence to vanity takes us into a dimension of narcissism that's been associated with narcissist discourse since the earliest discussions. And we've talked a little bit about this. Now you mention in the chapter that vanity has also long been located in specifically female tastes and values. So if we consider this um, as a kind of pair with the previous chapter, it really brings out, I think, really, really beautifully the importance of the imbrication of discourses of narcissism with ideas of women and ideas of the female and ideas of, sort of gender that really are, are part of this um, conception from its very beginnings. But one of the really interesting things that comes out in this chapter that I was that I found to be of special interest is you introduce us to another figure in this story who's particularly fascinating, and this is Joan Revere. So as the chapter moves into its exploration of the dimension of vanity, you bring us into the work um, and really the person of London-based psychoanalyst Joan Revere in the mid-1930s. So can you um, maybe talk a little bit about her and about the the aspects of her work as they pertain to this part of the story that are perhaps challenging um, dominant understandings of narcissism or of really dominant psychoanalytic work of the time. Right. So Joan Revere is a fascinating character um, and she didn't write a whole lot, but what she wrote has been quite influential. Her article, 1929 article, Womanliness as a Masquerade, um, was featured in um, Judy Butler's Gender Trouble and has become a kind of feminist fetish object. It is all over the internet. It's an early um, construal of femininity, womanhood as performative only. Like there is nothing behind, there's no essence of femininity behind the performance. It's all in performance. So it's a very modern notion of gender. That said, what I found in Revere was a very sophisticated theorist of narcissism. And this dimension of her work had never really been pulled together. Um, so I start with her um, critique of Freud and Freud on women's lack. So Freud, as we all know, um, talked about women as suffering from penis envy. Freud in 1914, however, in the essay on narcissism, portrays a very different sort of woman. It's an enigmatic woman. It's a woman who kind of distances herself, pulls herself out of a kind of emotional field, um, retreats, 
and is blissfully happy in doing so. She will not risk her emotional equilibrium by reaching out to the other. So Freud's got a long, beautiful passage. He, he um, It's actually quite comic passage. He compares uh, women, this woman who he says has the greatest uh, importance for the erotic life of men, um, compares her to um, cats, um, large beasts of prey, humorists, criminals. Um, he's completely fascinated by this woman who protects her uh, self at all costs. This is 1914. In 1934, I think it is, Rivera writes a long, scathing review of Freud, which in which he, she says, basically, Freud, you used to be jealous of us. Now you're saying we're jealous of you. You've got it all wrong. We don't um, need penises. We have a full inner life. Our inner selves are populated by what, in the evolving idiom, were known as objects. Um, that is, people inside of us. We have a very active inner life. So she was one of the first theorists of this inner life. Um, the idea that we have a, a company of many people inside of us. Um, and she basically argued for the pleasures of narcissism. That is, for the pleasures of solitude, um, for the pleasures of not being connected to the other, but of holding everything that one values within oneself. Now, Revere was in analysis with Freud. Um, she went to Vienna, as did many of the early analysts, and did an analysis with Freud. Um, and in a long, well, a long story that I present very um, briefly, I argue um conveyed to Freud some of her understanding of the narcissist psychic maneuvering that ended up in his work. Um, she was a brilliant writer. Everybody thought very highly of her intellect. Freud thought she was, um, she and another analyst in London were the most talented of analysts. She was a translator of Freud. Um, and she was, by her own account, a narcissist. By Freud's account, she was a narcissist, um, and I think she embraced it. She, um, I argue that she's sort of narcissism's first phenomenologist. She really gives us a sense of what it is like to live within the narcissist's skin. Um, she talks about grandiosity, about omnipotence, about all of the things that are now associated, the traits, the feelings that are now associated with narcissism. So I, I think she belongs to the canon. Um, it's a canon that's all male. Um, and I've tried to put her in there because I, I think she is just a, a beautiful um, sort of theorist of relations between the inside and the outside, the outer world and the inner world. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And speaking of the inside and the outside, this actually brings us really nicely, albeit um, in another kind of a way, to the next dimension of narcissism that the book explores, and this is gratification. So chapter 7 considers the centrality of gratification, not just to Freudian theory, but also to debates over proper analytic techniques. So here we see not just um, psychoanalytic theory, but also the theory of what psychoanalysis should and might look like coming into the discussion. So it's this really, really um, nice kind of way into psychoanalytic um, arguments and debates over what the psychoanalyst should be doing when he or she is doing um, their, their work. So you show in this chapter the ways that over the course of um, the psychoanalytic century, as it's called in the book, the understanding and status of gratification changes. So at first, as you put it, it's considered heretical that patients might need or want gratification. But by the 1970s, Kohut and others are suggesting that it was part of an analyst's job to gratify his patients, even if, um, or especially rather, if those patients were narcissistic. So can you talk a little bit about this, this kind of transformation of the understanding of the role of the analyst in providing gratification to patients. Why is that, or in what ways is that central to how we understand narcissism in this context? Right. So it's a complicated issue, but I'm going to try and make it simple as I tried to do in the book. Um, So first, the first thing to say is the 70s social critics were all in a twist about gratification. They saw the young, whether they were hippies or new agers or going to Esalen, whatever, they saw a cultural move towards gratification where before there had been renunciation and were sounding the alarm about the dangers of gratification. So when psychoanalysis was brought when psychoanalysis around narcissism was brought into the public conversation in the 70s, narcissism was linked to gratification, which made it a very easy target because critics were already just in an uproar about gratification, instant gratification, and so on. But to go back to the beginning, the issue really is about um, the analytic setting. So do should what should the analyst do? And if you think of the New Yorker cartoon, the standard issue New Yorker cartoon um, featuring psychoanalysis, you have the couch, the patient lying on the couch, and the analyst is sometimes asleep, um, doesn't say anything. Um, this is sort of the analyst is Blake blank slate. And this was kind of the classical Freudian and neo-Freudian analytic setting. The idea was that the analyst should be opaque to the patient, that everything that happened in analysis um, happened because the anal- the analyzant, the patient, would transfer onto the analyst old versions of people that were in the the person's life, the analyst would become the patient's father, the patient's mother. He was not a real person. Freud argued that the treatment must be carried out in abstinence, emotional abstinence, because his argument was if you deprive patients of emotional sustenance, their symptoms will flourish and then you can deal with them. It's a perfectly respectable position, but it didn't work for most patients. Um, So the other position, and it started early with 
Freud's colleague Ferenczi, Shandor Ferenczi, making arguments that patients needed more. Um, that analysts in being this kind of blank slate, nothing um, persona actually created more illness than they treated. That is that the analytic setting itself was iatrogenic. Um, it caused illness and that patients needed to know and that the pay, that the analyst was a real person. They need to engage with the analyst. They needed to experience the analyst's care and concern. He was when analysts talk about gratification in this way, they're not talking about sexual relations between analyst and patient. They're talking about emotional gratification. That is, is it okay to gratify patients' emotional neediness? Behind all this is a concern that sort of the, the good old hysterics of Freud's early days were being replaced by patients who needed much more, who were sicker, who could not be cured by interpretation, but who needed something more. And much of the history from around 1920 till 1970, 1980, much of the history of psychoanalysis is focused on this issue. What do patients want? What can we give them? And so on. So cohort, um, and I argue that Cohen's greatest success, perhaps, is at the level of technique. Because even those analysts who um, disdained his theorizing, thought he was mawkish and sentimental, um, were taken by and subscribed to, eventually subscribed to his notion that you had to give patients more than just the blank slate New Yorker cartoon analyst gave them. Um, and this is now pretty much part, I mean, it's still debated, but it's become kind of part of the consensual mainstream of psychoanalysis in the United States. Um, there's still a lot of talk about interpretation and so on, but there's also a, a, a spectrum of um, sort of discussion about giving patients more. Mm-hmm. Now. There's also a question that emerges in this part of the book, and this actually brings us to the next chapter, of not just what patients deserve, but what kinds of patients were analyzable. And so you talk in the next chapter on inaccessibility as a dimension of discourses and practices of narcissism about the issue of whether narcissistic patients were analyzable, and if so, how, what that might look like. So can you talk a little bit about that dimension of um, this debate as it's important for us to understand this dimension of narcissism? Right. So this the analyzability debate is very closely tied to the gratification debate. And I actually think put together, this is like much of 20th century um, psychoanalysis is trying to get this question right. Um, the idea was that narcissists, who are not like our malignant narcissists today, but those who are kind of enclosed closed in on themselves in the early Freudian way were inaccessible to psychoanalysis because they had no ability to really see other people as um, separate objects, as separate from themselves. So they were considered unanalyzable. And psychoanalysts 
um, discussed a lot who was a proper um, patient, who, who could be cured by being on the couch. And by the 1950s, they had so narrowed the criteria for analyzability um, that they were beginning to even make fun of themselves. Um, patients, for example, were expected to um, be capable of full object relating, to have no narcissistic tendencies, um, to be not the right, and so on, before analysis even began. So that what they were hoping for, or what they wrote that they were hoping for at the beginning looked like what we would think of as what someone might end up with at the end of a successful analysis. So the analysts themselves had kind of eroded um, the analytic setting um, and eroded the patient base so severely um, that they left most patients that they argued were actually seeking help outside the analyst compass. So what both Poet and Kernberg did, and there were others before them, but they really pulled it together. What they did was argue, actually, narcissists um, are treatable um, as are other so-called widening scope patients or so-called new patients, um, these patients who were more disturbed than Freud's early hysterics. These were actually treatable um, and that they needed more, but it was the analyst's job to give them more. So the patient who was in the early years of the 20th century um, was only capable of what was called a narcissistic transference, that is no transference at all, um, was by the middle and later part of the century um, a fit subject for analysis because analysts had redefined what their task was as well as, as redefined who their modal patient could be. So they basically opened up their science, their practice to a wider range of patients. And this is a great example of um, one of the things that we started out talking about, which is that the book is, it's about narcissism and it's about the sort of discourses and cultures of narcissism, but it's also very much a window into the history of psychoanalysis. Um, so it's, this is a moment in the conversation and in the book in which that becomes really, really apparent. In this part of the book as well, um, the book focuses in on, and it's I think it, uh, that's appropriate for us to take a moment to focus in on the Americanness of narcissism, mm-hmm. sort of the way that narcissism becomes American. Um, so this is a really important part of the story, um, and I think it makes sense to devote a little bit of time to it. So can you talk about this, um, the Americanness of narcissism, and the ways that narcissists became American in this part of the story? Right. So. What I mean by the Americanization of narcissism is basically this. Until around 1960 or 1970, narcissism was not a term of popular debate. You can look to a, an engram of this, or you can look at various databases, New York Times. It's very, it's, a, it's, a, it's an obscure word. It's used sometimes. And then in the 1960s and 70s, the usages, by any measure, just shoot way up. It happens first in the United States. Um, and it's due to these particular cultural critics. What is American about this is that 
as narcissism hits the public sphere, it is tied to this critique of consumption. So only in America in the post-war 50s, 60s period is there worry about abundance. Europe in the 50s and 60s is still very poor. America is wildly rich. And there's a lot of concern about what this means for the American character. So it's almost as if abundance is more of a problem than poverty to social critics in this period. So narcissism gets linked to abundance. So that's the Americanness of it. Now, Brits looking at America in this period are like, what is going on? They read Lash's book and they're like, first of all, what is he talking about? And second, why do Americans like to criticize themselves so much? Um, because they don't have the same cultural criticism. There's no David Reisman critique in Britain in the post-war period. The critique is not of individualism. There's a lot of writing about community and society. There's not the same social conditions, but there's also not the same critical discourse. And they're different patients, apparently. I mean, there's no way to know because all we have is analyst reports filtered through their um, sort of diagnostic schemas. But narcissism first takes off in the United States, and it does in a particular way associated with abundance, gratification, um, excess, and so on. This is not part of the clinical picture of narcissism. So that's the Americanization. Great. And you also kind of continue to discuss the link between Americans, Americanness, and narcissism in the next chapter, which is the last chapter on a particular dimension of narcissism before we reach the conclusion. And this is the chapter on identity. Um, you talk in this chapter about a kind of mid-century loss of a sense of identity, a sense of self for Americans, and the concomitant emergence of a notion of identity crisis and of the course of finding oneself in America. So can you talk a little bit about, um, as we kind of come to um, the, the last part of our discussion, about the relationship of this, this discourse of identity crisis and finding oneself, and the ways that that informs our understanding of the Americanness of narcissism in this part of the story. Okay, so Eric Erickson, um, another immigrant from Vienna, um, is, as many people know, associated with identity. He really defined identity um, for the culture um, in the 1940s. So Prior to that, so Eric Erickson is a psychoanalyst. He had worked with Anna Freud in Vienna. He came to America, I think, in 1933. Um, he was not an MD, became one of the most popular psychoanalysts in the United States, wrote a number of best-selling books, Young Man Luther, Gandhi's Truth, so on. I mean, just a phenomenal writer and thinker, um, often seen by analysts kind of patronizingly as a popularizer. But I actually think Erickson... Um, was a, a phenomenal reader of Freud. He read Freud in German. Um, he understood the kind of phenomenological Freud. He either recouped or invented, depends on your point of view, a phenomenological Freud. That is a Freud who was writing about feeling, self-esteem, and so on. 
um, Erickson began to talk about veterans, post-World War II veterans who had lost their sense of identity. Before he defines identity as a kind of robustly conceptualized sense of self, identity means sameness, personal identity, who you are, where you were born. Are you the same person today as you were yesterday? It's sort of a philosophical, very narrowly defined conception of identity. Erickson defines identity as a sense of who we are. It's experiential. And immediately after he does this, it is taken up both in the culture and within psychoanalysis. The analysts say, oh, this is not an analytic concept, identity. Freud didn't write about identity. Um, But still, it's it's become quickly an indispensable concept. In the culture, it's taken up and turned into this question of, or linked to a kind of age-old metaphysical issue, like, who am I? And as anyone who lived through the 70s and well, 60s as well knows, the question of who am I became a kind of cultural trope. Um, endless discussions of identity, sort of an experiential sense. Now, it was also quickly taken up by a number of movements and had been took on an ethnic, racial, gender, gender um, orient, sexual orientation, um, etc. Sort of ethnic identities, racial identities. Um, once it was delineated, it was suddenly everywhere. Um, so the question of who am I, um, who have I been, where am I going, and so on, was an Ericksonian defined question. My understanding of the sort of cultural clinical landscape is that this was a kind of trial run for the narcissism discussion. And you can almost substitute word for word uh, I, narcissism for identity. They do the, some of the same cultural work. It's a story of decline, not so much in Erickson's um, account, but in the popularizer's account. It's like we used to know who we were. You know, we, everybody was born on a farm. They were living in a small town. You knew who you were. You knew your place. Now in modernity, no one knows who they are anymore. It's also confusing. Um, it's a terrible, terrible thing and so on. The same arguments are made about narcissism. We used to be uh, fully robust people. We were sovereign. We didn't have so many needs. We weren't such a mess. Now, in the midst of modernity, no one knows what they're doing. We're just, you know, seeking instant gratification and so on. That said, Erickson um, was ignored by, especially by COVID, but also by the larger analytic establishment, even as he was popularizing identity and um, psychoanalysis in the culture at large. And identity is now one of the most commonly used words in the whole analytic lexicon. So um, I guess that's his gift to analysis. Thank you. Now, as we move um, now into the conclusion of our conversation and the conclusion of the book, I won't ask you to talk too much about um, the material in the conclusion because the conclusion talks about some of the material that we've already um, discussed pretty early in the conversation including um, some sort of recent champions of narcissism, which include the ideas of a kind of charismatic leader like Steve Jobs um, as a 
the kind of example of a successful or a healthy kind of narcissism. And you also talk here about the idea of a 21st century narcissism epidemic um, with the ideas of Generation Me and surveys like the NPI or uh, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory that some of us might have experience with, kind of experimenting with online. Mm -hmm. The book ends with a really interesting sentence, though, that speaks to one of the elements of um, what you were just talking about when discussing Erickson's work, and that's the idea of narcissism um, and or in terms of a critique of modernity. So the last sentence, of, I'll give you the last sentence of the book since I gave you the first one as a kind of way to wrap up with the parallel structure of our conversation and ask you to just, if you'd like to talk a little bit about it, to open that up that sentence for listeners before we close. And here it is. In short, the culture of narcissism might in the end be more the province of the orthodox analyst and the ironic detached and contemptuous critic of modernity than of the self-absorbed adolescent, the shopaholic woman, and the aging boomer still in search of his self. So would you, do you want to open that up a little? Sure. So my argument, the, the largest framing argument of the book is that this cultural critics um, in their yearning for this sovereign, bourgeois, male, independent, self without needs, were unwittingly voicing a kind of, um, or, or expressing or pointing to a kind of narcissistic fantasy. That is the narcissist dream, is to be sovereign, without needs, um, independent of everyone and everything. So the critics didn't pick up on the asceticism, the renunciation of the narcissist as construed by clinicians. All they picked up on was the abundance, the gratification, um, the plenty, not the emotional poverty. So unwittingly, they voiced a narcissistic fantasy, even as they were critiquing their fellow citizens for being narcissists. So that is part of what I'm referring to in the last um, bit of the book. Now, so the, I don't have the book in front of me, but the, the shopaholic woman, the aging boomer in search of himself, these are kind of the cultural tropes that define the narcissist from say 1980 till some of them to the present. Um, and my argument is actually maybe it's more, I don't know, useful, important, um, uh, enlightening to look at these, the other places where one can find narcissism, not in these easy targets. Um, is, is that clear? Perfect. Yes. That's okay. great. So, and I think that's a great place for us to uh, maybe wrap up. So Liz, um, thank you so much for spending the time. It's really been a pleasure and it's really, really been a pleasure to read and closely work through the book as well. Now, over the course of an hour, there's a lot that we touched on, but there's a whole lot of the book that we barely scratched the surface of, right? That, that we didn't have a chance to get into. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, well, I think you've done a great job of taking me and any listeners through the book. I mean, I, you've done a really wonderful job of hitting on the most important points I've tried to make. I'll just add one as a, as a kind of fun 
little bit. Um, and that has to do with fashion. So there's a lot of condemnation of fashion out there today um, as being, you know, just the province of empty headed um, sort of females with nothing else to do with their time. It's useless. It's a waste. Um, and what I uncovered in the, in the course of my research was an early 20th century discussion um, from about 1900 through 1930 among psychologists, psychoanalysts, anthropologists, and various other commentators in which fashion was seen as a site of self-making. It was seen as incredibly important. It was not seen as kind of an ancillary um, kind of realm, but as a realm central to one's self-definition. And in this discussion, there was a lot of appreciation for fantasy, for kind of trying on other um, sort of dimensions of oneself, for trying out being a different person for mask and masquerade. Um, and it was a, a perspective that was shared even by um, schoolgirls, for example, who were surveyed on their thoughts about clothing and fashion. Contrast that to the discussion today about fashion and narcissism, and it's a very, it's kind of a sad commentary because um, it's just total, totally condemnatory that there, there's no upside, basically, in the popular discussion and in some of the most popular works that are very anti-narcissism, um, fashion is seen as one of the prime offenders. So um, I think it's kind of telling in the way that we've kind of shut down. Um, it's kind of our own asceticism as a people has kind of shut down this realm of, of pleasure and um, experimentation that our predecessors had no trouble with. So, that to me was a huge surprise in finding that. I just thought it might be a fun thing for readers to know about. Yeah, thank you so much. And that if we would have had more time, there were all kinds of moments in the different chapters where actually the issue of clothing and the importance of clothing comes up in these really fascinating ways. So thanks for mentioning that because that also is a dimension of the book that um, readers who just look at the title or the cover might not otherwise know is there. But that is really perhaps a, a way to inform a kind of broader history of clothing and ideas of fashion. So maybe that's another book. <laughs> well, it's kind of ironic because the people on the cover are naked as far that's as right. I can tell. So <laughs> it's right. not much, but whatever. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and oh, I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful. So thanks very much. Well, Carla, thanks so much for your very careful and informed reading and your great questions. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.